Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. This week, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. David Borges in his office in South Lake Tahoe, California. Dr. Borges is a member of the GCSS College of Fellows, and he also teaches continuing education for the International Chiropractic Association of California. Today's conversation gave us an opportunity to cover a multitude of topics as we dive inside the mind and the thinking process of a Gonstead Fellow. So without any further ado, Dr. David Borges. Borges, thank you for letting me join you today. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, could you start off by letting us know a little bit about how you got into chiropractic and more specifically how you ended up in Gonstead Chiropractic? Well, certainly. I started off in chiropractic by uh, an injury in wrestling. I was a collegiate wrestler. The coach that I had was from Hawaii, and I found out at that time <clears throat> Hawaiians didn't believe in MDs so much. They went to chiropractors, they went to acupuncturists. Hmm. And they told, he told us in front at the very beginning, if you guys get hurt, they want to make sure we didn't take any medications or any drugs, because that's the time in the 70s they were testing for people who had drugs. And so you're going to be, everybody's going to be clean, and you're going to go to chiropractors first, unless you blow out a knee or something, you need a specialist orthopedic. And so I ended up getting hurt, went to a chiropractor, Dr. Stim in Auburn, California, and he took x-rays and he uh, helped my problem. And, and I was able to go back to wrestling, which was wonderful. And two weeks later, I changed my major from business to science. And I got into chiropractic college at, at uh, Western States up in Portland, Oregon. Okay. And then I, during a while I was there, I was in the Gonstead Club. And the reason I got into the Gonstead Club is as a wrestler, as a competitor, I always wanted to ask the question wherever I went, what is the most difficult thing to do? What's the most difficult technique to learn and, and to master? And it doesn't take long to figure out that it's going to be Gonstead. Uh, and so I said, that's the one I'm going to do. So I just went to the Gonstead Club. We started meeting some wonderful uh, Gonstead guys up in the Pacific Northwest, which there are a bunch. They're, they, they like to get in their offices and watch and observe. And, and through that whole process, I was learning the Gonstead technique. And then my wife decided she wanted to become a chiropractor. And I didn't care for the Pacific Northwest weather pattern. <laughs> so, so I said, you can go anywhere you want other than stay in Portland, Oregon. So she decided that she wanted to go to Pacific States Chiropractic College, which is in Hayward, uh, California. Now it's known as Life West. Mm-hmm. And then, so I graduated and we went down there. She got started in the chiropractic college and I got a job at the clinic. Um, actually, I was the assistant clinic director. Uh, that Don't be impressed by that because there's only two of us at the time. <laughs> There was a clinic director and assistant <laughs> clinic director. That was me. And, and, and I was the faculty uh, advisor for the Gonstead Club. And then somebody who was supposed to teach Gonstead uh, didn't show up. And they called me up at the clinic and said, hey, can you come down and teach this class? We need somebody to do this now. I said, sure. <laughs> and so I did that for about three years. And my wife uh, ended up taking my Gonstead classes and, and just had a, a great time. She graduated in, in uh, 1984. Uh, but I just continued uh, the program. Then uh, wonderful folks, uh, Ed Cremata, Mark Lopes, uh, were about ready to start teaching at LifeWest after that. And I said, there couldn't be two or there were a dozen people that seemed to come out of the woodwork and just help. And they have a great Gonstead program at LifeWest. Yes. And they took that over. And I went back home to Lake Tahoe. And that's where I started my practice here in 1985. Actually in this building. 
Well, in this room. In this room. Awesome. I've been here in 1985. I haven't moved back time. Just enjoyed being a child this, this whole time. That's awesome. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit since we're uh, since we're in Tahoe. And it's, as we were talking about a little bit before, it's a very uh, touristy town, mm-hmm. um, high turnover, that kind of thing. So can you talk a little bit about how it is your, as you mentioned, it's your hometown. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you got started and the challenges of getting going in a touristy town where people are coming and going all the time? Well, first of all, I realized that. Uh, when you go to resort home towns, to uh, any kind of business, you got to realize there's going to be turnover. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of a lot of places like that. And there's look, there's too many uh, chiropractors here. There's too many medical doctors. There's too many orthopedists. There's too many lawyers. There's too many real estate people. Just because everybody lives here. Who doesn't want to be in Tahoe? <laughs> Who doesn't want to be in It's awesome. <laughs> it is, and it's wonderful. But if you, as long as you know the challenge, that there's a turnover of about 20% of the population every year, you realize you're going to have to be part of the community. Mm-hmm. And and where I came from in the San Francisco Bay Area, when I, was, I actually interned three different offices. I just want to see what the business side of chiropractic was all about. And <clears throat> and some of those guys were in practice for 25 years, and they're seeing patients when they started 25 years ago. Rarely happens in Lake Tahoe because you're going you're to turn over. So you just got to realize getting in the community uh, and, and staying active. And then also growing up here with a good reputation helped out tremendously with my family. And, and so, uh, and we worked hard. Um, mm-hmm. I, I took a pattern after Dr. Gonstead, not near as much as he did, but uh, I have yet to work a 40 hour work week. I, most of the time for 31 years, I worked six days a week, mm-hmm. but it wasn't because it was drudgery because I didn't, I had to, but I loved it. Mm-hmm. I love being a chiropractor. I love being around chiropractors. I love the results that we get. And, and, and just, the, of course, the Gunstead technique has pulled me through this whole process. And, and there is no question about the, the issue of uh, the best thing you could do is get your, the last patient you saw better. Yeah. So they'll tell somebody else that they, you got them better. And once you get that reputation out in the community, uh, everything else just falls into place and, and start enjoying every moment in your practice. Yeah, it tends to be a lot of really hard work up front, but once you get the ball rolling, it's like a snowball going downhill, and it kind of takes over on its own. It does, and I've analyzed that uh, at least a little bit, but as you're in practice, and you you might be struggling at the beginning, hang in there, hang in there, whatever anchors you need to do to keep yourself going. Keep keep yourself going, because as, as you get people better, they leave your practice for a while, but they'll tell other people about you, and then they'll come back if they have another need. And, and I, I know God said that over and over again. And and as you build up more of that backlog, they, you get more referrals on the on the. And so it's just a matter of just showing up to your practice and getting the next patient better. Yeah. Well, and Tahoe is also a place that um, economic changes affected here. So when it's good, it's really good, and when it's bad, it's really bad. What kind of things do you have in mind? Because I'm sure other people have things like that, but probably not quite as extreme as this. And so if you can weather this extreme, you can probably weather any extreme. Uh, how yeah. do you plan for those or even prepare for that kind of thing where it, it fluctuates and can fluctuate quite wildly? Well, the interesting thing about that, and I've studied that as well over the years, uh, it, it, when there's snowstorms are so bad that you know there's no travel, uh, except on occasion. I've had patients come to my office on uh, snow skis, cross-country skis to get an adjustment during a snowstorm because the roads weren't plowed yet. They will come. And it's just honoring and, and uh, the, the, those kinds of things happen. 
But you, you'll find that, yes, that was a negative. The office was closed for a couple of days because of some sort of emergency. Uh, <clears throat> but then it, it, that, that backup that occurs, uh, more people will come in as a result of shoveling snow or slipping on ice. And, mm-hmm. and you got to fix those guys, too. So, so every, you just go with the flow. And, and I said it before, just take care of the patient in front of you as best you possibly can. Yeah. It's funny. My brother-in-law was married just down the street from here. Um, and they did it in the winter time, so we had to we had to drive all the way up here in a snowstorm up uh, Kingsbury and the whole thing, um, and then getting up here and the roads were plowed, but they still are kind of the way they are. And I remember getting up here and we were kind of like, it ain't easy getting around up here when it gets to be like that. No. But I could also see how it it does lead to injuries. And then you got the crazy people who are intentionally doing it through their skiing and their sledding and the other crazy stuff that happens for me on the desert. It's dirt bike riders. Okay. Um, They're always breaking their collarbones and jacking up their shoulders and breaking their spines. And it's just what they do. And so it's funny. You get like these things that are uh, just native to your area of what people do. So another trend that happened when I first got started 35 years ago, I used to see the people snow skiing that got hurt snow skiing in the last 10 years, I'm finding more patients are hurt by other skiers hitting them while they're skiing. Oh, yes. They don't get as hurt as much as they used to skiing, but uh, they're in the process of it, and the injuries are amazing up there. They, they try to keep a good handle on that, but yeah, it's not a good handle. Yeah, you mostly just see it coming and go, oh, no, you, <laughs> train yeah, wreck. Or you don't see it at all. I don't see it all, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I've seen a lot of that. And then, yeah, I have some relatives who come up here to ski, and they like to do the uh, skiing through the trees. Oh. Which is like, that's fun until it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, negative consequence. <laughs> yes. Um, so, oh, so then the other thing is you were telling me how you, um, you do some work for the uh, International Chiropractic Association of California yeah. with doing um, – seminars with them. Can you talk a little bit about what you do with them and how that works and some of what you've seen in that arena? Yeah, it's a wonderful experience. I've been teaching for the ICAC, International Chiropractic Association of California, and for about 15 years. And it gets me out of my office and lets me see what the profession is doing on a one-to-one basis three, two or three times a year. And, and interesting to see how those uh, other chiropractors are dealing in their practices and how they are taking care of their patients. And I always teach Gonstead. I teach the philosophy. I teach the Gonstead uh, system in, in hopes of them to learn more. And, and I teach them about the, the Gonstead group, uh, the Gonstead seminars, the Alex and Doug Cox, and how they're still teaching their program, GMI. And I talk about that. And I also talk about the Gonstead Clinical Studies Society and, and the seminars that we're providing. Just the hope to give them a – I don't teach them Gonstead as such as – the whole system because mm-hmm. I only have three hours, <laughs> right? And, and, but I, but I can hope I can plant a seed that they can go to learn more from the seminar professionals. Uh, but there's a lot of fun things about that. One of them is what I, I start off with uh, off branding, and, and there's a lot of chiropractors out there. I always I start my seminar with how many people have been with chiropractor five years, ten years, fifteen years, thirty, forty years, and. Uh, and there's some guys out there doing 50 years of chiropractic dedication. And these guys are wonderful, men and women. And it's fun to, to be around them. But then I start talking about that off-branding concept. And we talked about it a little before, where we can't advertise what we do. But in any group of 50 chiropractors that have been in practice five years, there isn't one of them that doesn't tell a story or couldn't tell a story about bedwetting. You know, kids that are out there, they're having emotional problems because of and, and they're wetting the bed, and the chiropractic adjustment just clears out, you know, S1, S2, whatever it is, and and they get results. 
And it's so uh, much of a blessing for that child. Uh, but we can't advertise that. And mm-hmm. we don't say we do adjustments for bedwetting. Um, the other thing, off-branding came from a concept of medic- from medicine where they'll use one medication and it happens to do real effective for another. An example I use is the one that uh, growing eyelashes. They found out a medication the op- ophthalmologists were using, some eye drops, grew eyelashes bigger and wider and and now they're using that medication for that. But they, not the original reason for it, but they, that's off-branding. Mm-hmm. The original reason is not to take care of bedwetting. Uh, another thing that's very, very popular is uh, men are couples that are infertility. Uh, every chiropractor, every seminar that I've ever been to can make give that story that where uh, they're, the couple are infertile, and they start the wife or husband gets adjustments, usually the wife. And then whatever changes occurs in that body, then they become pregnant. Mm-hmm. And that actually happened to be uh, yesterday. I mean, over the years. But every it's not just me. It's every chiropractor. Yeah. And we can talk about all kinds of things uh, uh, where we, even with, in the past, a lot of people have used to, in the 1918 uh, pandemic that happened back then, the chiropractic became extremely popular because we were yes. getting adjustments. But we're just upregulating the immune system when mm-hmm. we're doing adjustments, particularly in the upper thoracic spine. And, and, but we can't say, right. uh, we take care of COVID patients, and right. we're going to get over COVID. Don't do that. But in my conversation, daily conversation, I'm talking about upregulating uh, the immune system. And it's not only chiropractic, but eating right and moving right, exercising. This is a good time to get your health yeah. as high as it possibly can. Yeah, it's kind of... I've never told anybody that I can treat the flu. And yet if I have the flu, I want to get adjusted. Oh, absolutely. Because we all know that it works that way. And so then it totally makes sense. I think the off-branding is a great way of communicating that because it is something we all know. Mm-hmm. But it's always been a challenge to communicate it. And off-branding is probably the best way of yeah. communicating it. Like it's a beneficial side effect. Yeah. So let's take it. <laughs> let's work with it, especially <laughs> when it becomes pretty reliable. Because I would say if you, if you had, let's say, 10 kids with ear infections and you start adjusting them, you're going to get more of them better than you're going to not. You're not going to get one or two better. You're going to get the majority, high percent, if not all of them, but Mm -hmm. closer to all of them than Mm -hmm. none of them. Exactly. And so that's pretty effective off-branding. Who hasn't taken care of a colic child? Right. That parents send you Christmas cards for 20 years because you helped their child from getting over colic. I mean, that's a fun thing to do. Yeah. One of the really funny ones that happens to me, especially now, is since my wife's a pediatric dentist, she seeks kids for things. So... Because she does tongue, tie, phrenectomies, that kind of thing. She'll get a kid come in, and the kid's really gassy, which is a symptom of being tongue-tied. Mm. So the kid comes in, um, she evaluates them, and recognizes that they have no tongue-tie whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So her next go-to move is, well, then it must be just in the guts. You should go see my husband. So this happened not that long ago. So mm-hmm. I'm in the office working, so I'm right there to check, to kind of check. So she says, okay, I'll bring him in. So she brings this kid in. And into my office. <laughs> so we go the other way. So she brings him into my office and I check this kid out and she tells me how um, this kid, this is a while back, this kid's probably about four or five months old, maybe six months old, rarely poops ever. Um, and it's extremely distended in the abdomen. Mm. So, okay, so we, we check it out, give the adjustment. She puts the kid back in the car seat because she wants to get adjusted too. So I have enough time to scope her palpator. I have her laying in side posture. My back, my back is to the kid, and all of a sudden we hear an explosion, <laughs> and her eyes get really huge, and she's like, um, 
my kid's never done that like in their entire life. And I said, well, that's about six months worth coming out right now. It was so bad. It came out through the diaper. It was in the car. It was everywhere. So she's got to clean this kid up. Well, I end up seeing seeing her in my wife's office again, six months later for the six month checkup. And she's like, you know what? Great. Like it happened that one time after that, totally regular kids. Great. No big deal. And it's kind of funny because like, well, that wasn't really what I was after. But the fact that there was that distension and that history tells you something's not working right. But this is what we were talking about before. People want to know the formula. So what is the magic colic adjustment? What do you do for colic? And that's what, how it's often asked. It's like, mm-hmm. well, what do you do? You do the same thing you always do. You find it and you fix it. That's and then and it's going to be wherever it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's kind of the, the point, too, is getting that communicated to people that we're going to do what we're going to do. But then what happens because of it, that's where the off-branding right. comes in. It's a great way to communicate it. Yeah, and and, I, and as we talked about earlier, uh, even D.D. Palmer started that way. Right. <laughs> and that's how he was figuring it out. Yeah. And I think he did make the mistake of thinking, when I do this, I get this result. And he made that mistake for a little while. He did. And then started figuring out, actually, no, as long as I fix the problem, I get the solution. Mm-hmm. If I think too much into it, I do the wrong thing and I don't get the solution. And I think that's another thing at chiropractic we don't talk about a lot, is that doing the wrong thing gets you no result or a worse result. And that is important to know. We need, we need to know that as well. Uh, but it, as I start my seminar, that it's, it seems to perk everybody up, and, and especially for the young docs that are in there, they go, didn't know that those kinds of things would happen. They don't teach that in chiropractic college, right. I believe. But it's going to be there, and it's always there, and it's never not there. And, and we just need to support that and, and help the young docs realize it's, it's not the medication that you can throw down that changes these symptoms. It's reducing the subluxation, allowing the body to heal from itself, from, on its own. And it'll do the right things. Just got to get the pressure off the nerves. Yeah, I often talk to students about the fact that, for example, they aren't often talked about. I was actually going to talk to you later about headaches, but I'll just bring it up now. So, <laughs> okay. um, like migraines, for example. As a newer doc will get a migraine headache patient, they'll do something and they'll cure their migraines. So their immediate thought is, what did I do? And I'm going to do that on everybody with migraines. And that's reading too much into it not understanding. So can you talk a little about the importance of making sure that we're not doing that yeah. and why that doesn't work? Well, it, it just comes down to the constant principles of the palpation, the static motion palpation, the x-rays, uh, looking at all the symptoms and, and putting the picture together. Uh, the reason, as I teach all the other doctors, and not all of them are constant doctors, and they're still getting some pretty great work. A lot of great work is done. But you, but each time you come, to, like you were talking about earlier, no two patients are the same. There's biological individuality, not only in, uh, chemically, but also chiropractically. We need to focus on that subluxation, which is uh, just not trying to uh, repeat that last adjustment, making thinking that it's going to save, save that symptom. And, and I even am guilty of it on occasion when I when, when a patient walks in my office and they've had back pain and. And uh, I'm palpating. I know, that, hey, it's the right sacroiliac joint, uh, PIEX, and I'm going to set that thing. I can tell them ahead of time. Well, that they're, in my mind, I know they're just going to be getting up, getting better, and and and, uh, and it's just neat to see the pre and post the evaluation and the adjustments, and then the functional change. And that's what I found in the last ten years of my practice. Most people are are worried about their symptoms. But if you can get their functional change first, which is what we do, uh, then that can impress them to finish or clear up the rest of the subluxations that they have in their bodies. But 
if you can make a, an immediate functional change, and I, I remember hearing your story as far as uh, spondylolisthesis versus mm -hmm. a, a ilium adjustment, and the ilium adjustment corrected it. Uh, boy, how many how valuable that is to a young doctor. Right. Spondyl, everybody wants to jump on a spondyl. Oh, you got to get that baseball chair. Get it underneath. Exactly. Yep. Sit underneath. Everybody knows that's the way it's going to work. When no, it didn't work on me. <laughs> and you did it for years. Yeah. And then you finally found somebody that reanalyzed and, and found the subluxation. And when you do that to another patient or to a patient, or you, you set a, an ilium or you set an L5 or L3 and have them stand up, just stand up. What do you mean I couldn't stand up before? Before I got, no, just stand up. And they do. And it's just so heartwarming. And once you change that function, then you let them understand that the pain's going to go away. But now we've got you functional. And now yeah. things are going to get better. And, and, and then, they, then they'll come back with a day or two, hey, I slept through the whole night. When a patient tells me they sleep for a whole night, I know we're on the right track, and and then the symptoms end, end up winding up. So, yeah, I one of the amazing ones is when they come in complain, say they're complaining of L five and they're pointing at L five going, "This one's killing me," and then you adjust, say, an ilium, mm -hmm. and they can get up and walk and move, and the L five doesn't hurt, but you never touched it. Touch That's it. the one that blows people's <laughs> minds because right. they so think, and in fact, my patients do it all the time. It hurts here. You need to adjust here. And I'm like, well, let me see. <laughs> um, because when you can actually fix something, then they start getting a bigger concept that th these are not individual bones, even though they are. It's one organ. It's one unit. And if this part's not functioning right, and so I start teaching my patients about subluxation compensation. Mm -hmm. And then what you're feeling is the compensation, but I'm finding the subluxation. Mm -hmm. And it's funny to me because they'll, they'll know that. So then I'll have students follow me. And my patient will say, well, I think I'm compensating up here because that's where I'm feeling it. So it's probably down lower. And they're like, how do your patients know more than most of the people in our class? And it's like, well, because taught them. Because it was like, if they're going to keep trying to force me to do something I know is wrong, then I'm going to teach them why it's wrong and why this way is better because it makes my life a lot easier. And so then they know. And then once they know, when they share the story, that's how they tell the story. And that's great. You tell the story for me. So it's a great education tool as well to, to get that mindset. And then you also get that other one where a patient will come in and they're right. They are right. Yeah. <laughs> you do the palpation, you do the scoping, you go, okay. And, and that is so much fun. That one gets students too because a patient comes in and goes, well, I'm experiencing this. Therefore, I think it's probably this. And then I scope and palpate and go, yep, you're correct. <laughs> and they're like, they're better in analysis than we are. <laughs> so, And that's a fact. But I tell them, especially in their body, mm -hmm. that there is a degree to which, yes, some patients will mislead you. But there are other patients who will lead you right to it. And you have to know the difference between the two. Which patients can you fully believe and which ones are you like, well, maybe. We'll see. Yeah. But it is interesting how that happens. It is. It is. And, and then but when that functional change happens, and like with you and with me, that functional change happens, you don't have to talk about the symptoms anymore. Now we're going to talk about you moving, you're standing up, you're walking. You can stand for 10 minutes while you only can stand for two minutes. Or you can sit in your car for five hours instead of two hours. And those are the kinds of things that people are just uh, craving for. At least, at least that's what it feels like in my practice. You know, been in practice 40 years now. Yeah, it, for me, when I was in school, I started chiropractic school when I was 21. I quit playing football in college probably about within a year, like less than a year before that. And when I got on campus, I, I physically could not run at all. Mm. And I walked everywhere with a limp. And that's how everybody knew me. So then by the time I graduated, I could actually go out on the field and I could run again. 
and the speed was coming back. Mm-hmm. Not fully, but I could run again, and b- being a DB, I could run backwards again, which was always one of those novelties that most people don't know how to run backwards, and I could run backwards almost as fast as I could go forwards because our coach trained us to do it. Mm-hmm. But the training didn't matter if I physically couldn't make it happen. Right. And so to go from limping everywhere, and oh, <laughs> people always be like, you got a ghetto limp, because I had like this little gift before I walked around, and I was like, that's what I have to do, and carrying a backpack isn't helping any, because I was an idiot, and I put it on one shoulder, but... That kind of thing made it worse. And so to go from that to functional where people could actually witness it was like, well, clearly there's a functional change taking place. And one of the funny things about that, and I see this with patients now, is that when I first started getting adjusted, people observing me could not really tell if I was better. And I think at times they thought I was worse. And even though that was the case as far as the symptoms went, internally, I was like, I'm getting better. I can tell. Mm -hmm. Well, how can you tell? I don't know. I can just tell. I feel like positive change is happening and I'm going to just keep riding this train. Mm -hmm. And then three, six, nine months down the road, what I was feeling changing became more evident on the outside where everybody could see it. And Mm -hmm. that is a funny thing about chiropractic too, because what we get with with medicine, people, it's like you take this pill and if it doesn't happen immediately, it's not going to happen. And we're the opposite. It's like, if it doesn't happen immediately, who cares? <laughs> it's, it, we know give it time. Right and the worse it is, and fortunately that was kind of built into my head to know that you're really bad. So give us some time. Like, make set your ex- expectations way out there. And I did. Mm-hmm. And it eventually came around. So then the funny thing was by the time I was in my mid-30s, I was coaching football. And I could go out on the field. And I could play. I was better at 35 than I was at 25. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of an anomaly, but that's just the way that it was. That's how messed up it was, but that's how much better it could get. And so right. um, it, it, it's, it's weird how that works. And I find that to be one of the challenges is setting people's expectations correctly for that change. Yes. Um, how, how do you communicate that? Do you, especially when you kind of, when you've done it for a while, you can kind of anticipate which ones you're going to be like, this is going to be a slow road. How do you set the, how do you kind of communicate that to set them up for that? Well, there's two things that happen. I'm also uh, focusing on the patient. I've had some patients walk in, actually, last week. I want you to fix this in two adjustments. Right. And it might not be a two-adjustment problem. It might be. It might be. Mm-hmm. But you just don't know that ahead of time. So it's hard to... to but you do know, uh, after a while, uh, the, the symptoms that they're bringing in, if you, know, if you have the radiculopathy, it's usually going to take a little bit longer. If they've had the, the, the case longer, like two or three months... I've just been waiting for it to get better for two or three months, and it's not getting better. Actually, it's getting worse, and now I can't walk 15 feet. Uh, that's going to take a longer time. And, and, and so I set up in my own mind how long it's going to be based on what their symptoms are uh, initially. Then I do my exam, and then I can really tell. Uh, because you, you have to do, as in many patients, as, as you get to do in your practice 40 years, uh, you get to tell, eh, I can do this. <laughs> Sounds like a... <laughs> yeah, I can name that too. Name that tune in three notes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it seems like what the concept did that very well. Yes, but, but you get that 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 sense as time goes on, uh, and you know you're going to be here a while. Yeah, and and if it's a disc, a herniated disc with a uh, annular tear, you know what? You're, you're, we're we're going to be neighbors. Yeah, uh, and you've and you've ignored it for a year, and you've ignored <laughs> and and, it, and we're going to start slowly. Oh, I want it fixed now. Just get the whole, just get me fixed. We're going to start slowly. And then yeah. you, you judge how well you're doing by the next visit the patient comes in. And sometimes, yeah, we did a great job. And sometimes, well, this is going to take a little while. So I've done those, you know, those one, two wonderful adjustments. And I've done the 50, 60 adjustments. 
and every you just don't know ahead of time. But as you get the more data, you get the the MRIs, you get your uh, patient skills, you get your scoping skills, you get your X-ray skills. Uh, one of the things that I do in my office, I've done for many many years, is lateral flexion views mm -hmm. uh, to see the uh, how the joints are move, moving. If they're moving the opposite direction than you anticipate, you're going to be here a little bit longer. If they're moving the right direction, I'm going to do, uh, we're going to get a short, this might be very long, we're going to change it functionally, you're going to get on your way. And, and you're going to keep it going because some of the exercises we give or some of the adjustments that we do. Yeah. Oh, and there's one other concept that you're talking about. That I, that I want. Once you know you're going to be getting better, it doesn't seem like there's anything that could stop that. I know you're athletic right. still, and I'm athletic still, and I get injured. I do a lot of fun things. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But once I get the adjustment, and it hurts, but once I get the adjustment, and it gets started going the right direction, even though it's not better, I, I'm done. I, I can't stop it from getting better. Because mm -hmm. that homeostasis that we talk about, yeah. with the, what our bodies need. I've often explained it to patients as, um, I, I guess I, I like physics. <laughs> some yeah, um, I use a physics principle that it's momentum. Mm -hmm. And when you've got negative momentum where you're not doing anything to necessarily make it worse, but you're getting worse, like a way you can think about it is the way people, obesity. Mm -hmm. Once you've got enough negative momentum, people are like, well, I eat like a bird, but I still gain weight. That's because you've got a ton of negative momentum. You've got to stop that momentum first, then you can start going in the other direction. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's one of those physics principles you don't think about, but it takes a lot of energy. Like you've got a train going down the track. It takes a ton of energy just to stop it from going down the track, and you haven't even switched directions yet. Then you get it going, but once you get it going in the other direction, the more momentum it builds, the less energy you have to input to keep it going, and it can go faster and faster with less input. And that that's kind that's of how right. our health is, that's, that's a good is idea. that you've got so much negative momentum, it's going to take a lot of effort just to stop this locomotive. Right. Then when we come to a stop, then that's good. That's step one. Now we've got to start using a lot of energy to get you going the other direction. But the more you travel in that other direction, the less input we require. And that's when you start seeing them once a month, once every two months, three months, four months, whatever it ends up being as they build more of that. And yeah. I, I, years ago, I started using that analogy. And I thought people seem to understand that because otherwise, it's like you said, they think, Give me two adjustments and I'll be good. Not if you've got a ton of negative momentum, you won't. All we're going to do is just slow down the bad stuff. We're not actually going to make any good stuff. So It, it, it could be cool. Yeah. yeah. You do that much better than I do. I, uh, when regarding those subjects, I just say it's diet and exercise. You figure out the formula. <laughs> That's like the Dr. Godstead eating advice. Like on the cow, if we, like on the farm, if we wanted a fat pig, we fed it a lot of corn. If we wanted a thin pig, we fed it a little bit of corn. You figure it out. <laughs> I, I haven't heard that one. But that's what Gosta told somebody one time. It's like, well, that's uh, expert advice. <laughs> so, figure it out. Well, so I did want to get into the, it. As I told you, a lot of people want to know more about the, some of the case management stuff. And so I thought about headaches. Mm -hmm. And it seems like one of the big, and I don't, headaches is such a big topic. We probably won't get into much detail, but... I think one of the big topics, my wife and I were talking about this, because if somebody, let's say somebody has a migraine, my wife, being a pediatric dentist, her first question is, well, how's their bite? I don't know where that question would even show up in my list. It's way <laughs> down the line, and yet it's her first question. So we talked about the fact that when you go to see somebody who's a specialist, they assume that the solution is in their specialty. So, she, so it's like, I'm thinking, where's the subluxation? She's thinking, how's their bite? The endocrinologist is thinking, well, how, are their hormones messed up? Mm -hmm. And like on and on it goes that we're all thinking that. And she said it. Then my wife said, well, on the contrary, if you go to a general person, they probably know so little about everything that they can't even help you that way either. So you don't want a generalist. You want a specialist. But the specialist is going to assume it's in their specialty. 
And headaches in the end are a symptom of almost everything. You could have a flu and have a headache. Like you could have almost anything. So a lot of times, since we get so many headache patients, the question is, person comes in, tells you you got a headache. How do we start breaking down headaches to figure out what might be going on or trying to get trying to get to a more long-term solution? So it's more like, what's the thinking process with a headache? Well, going back in my mind is what have they done that, that changed their physiology from no headache to headache? What's, right. what, are the, what are the symptoms? What's the activity? What's What's the initiating? Have you had it since you were a kid, or did it start last week? Or did it start with uh, menstrual cycles? Or, right. Or, or you, did you, uh, and, you, and this is the big one for me. For and patients aren't always the best communicators, and you just got to dig it out of them sometimes. Uh, did you ever play sports? And, and you played football. And I played football. I wrestled. Uh, a big one for me is, especially girls. Did you ever play soccer? Oh yeah. Did you ever do headers? Oh, when are these headaches gone? Oh, I was about thirteen. Oh, when did your menstrual cycle start? Well, so you get down, you're breaking down where the causation is, and then I'm I'm really big on on concussions and try to make sure that part of what they're dealing with is not a concussion uh, issue, and I do with the cranial nerves. Uh, I'm real good with doing cranial nerves, and I'm really do good with you know, eye movement and those kinds of things to see if there's any uh, possibility of, of a mechanical problem. Mm-hmm. Then, we, then we've got to go into the 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 foods that they're eating and the allergies that they might have. And then and if, if those are the cases, then I send those off to people and what they're talking about as far as nutrition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I just go back into the biomechanical aspect with the, the, the scoping, the palpation, the static motion palpation, and, and the, the x-rays and, and doing that particular analysis that way. But, but I, I do a real good workup. Um, some of the things I'm really cautious about, especially with uh, an older patient that has headaches, uh, have they had any... Uh, chemotherapy or any kind of, you, know, you got to get in their, their medical background pretty deeply because there's there's some reactions that occurs you know, years ago taking some medication that will show up later on. Uh, might not be immediate. And, and those, and then of, of course, diet, that's huge of, of what they're putting in their bodies. And, and, and then going to that allergy route, which I send that out as well. Yeah. Well, since you brought up cranial nerves, let's talk about them some because we've talked about them a lot on the podcast through polyvagal theory and oh. that kind of stuff. That it seems like a lot of the modern research is really discovering just how vital the vagus nerve is. That it's it basically it, it, you could say it is synonymous with homeostasis. Yeah. That without it, there is no homeostasis. It is when people talk about the gut brain connection, it is the gut brain connection. Um, yeah. we're, I've been talking with Chris Myers a lot about breathing that breathing is becoming a more a bigger issue, that people aren't breathing right. Well, what is the connection? It's back to, once again, the vagus. It's back to um, the diaphragm the di- and, and the fact that um, the vagus changes um, anatomical structure at the diaphragm. There's mm-hmm. definitely something there. When you start looking at, at cranial nerves, how, what kind of things are you looking for? How do you evaluate that? How would you relate that back even to headaches or even other symptoms? Uh, I'm glad there's, that's a lot of, I mean, that, a lot that's of a, right that, there. yeah, that's a week long seminar right there. <laughs> yes. Uh, so let's take that. Uh, we'll do cranial nerves first because you know, just doing the checking of the eye and sticking the thing right. out, smiling, those kind of blinking eyes, most, all those things that are going on. But when you get to that vagus, that is so huge. Uh, and the reason it's huge and even emotional issues can change the vagus. As you get under stress, your sympathetic system is on, on fire and it's high up and I, I'll just give an example of a patient I had years and years ago, and there was a fire here in Tahoe, and the, the daughter's uh, it was about seven or eight years old, and her dad was a fireman, and she went out. He went out, and he didn't come back, and she knew the fire was there. So her 
sympathetic system was just flaming. She was so nervous, so, uh, where, where's, where's my dad? He's coming back. And, and so what, naturally what the body does, it brings up the parasympathetic has to come up to get that balance. And, and what we found, what I found over the years, and what the literature supports, is that the sympathetic system can come down once the, the, uh, the trigger is gone, but the parasympathetic or the vagus nerve keeps on functioning at a very high level, and that creates a lot of complications. It's difficult to bring that down. So if it stays up high, a lot of people will just do medications that will bring that down artificially and, and try to balance it out that way. And that's where Gansi was so brilliant in that he, I'm sure he um, very early realized that and tried to do the adjustments to help balance that parasympathetic sympathetic system. And when you get that, when you make that change, the sympathetic parasympathetic change, you change our patient's life. And, mm -hmm. and for their digestive system starts working better, everything starts functioning. And, and though difficult, a little difficult. Yeah, I was talking with a, a student, uh, I think it was a student, anyway, I was talking with somebody about the idea that when you're, met, when you're affecting these things, it's kind of like balancing out a teeter-totter except the teeter-totter is way more sensitive. Um, it's, and, it, and trying to balance it is just that it's more like trying to balance on ice skates. Mm -hmm. It's not something that you just balance it and then you walk away. Mm -hmm. It's an active thing that you're constantly balancing it. And that sometimes one of the things that affects it is just the quality of the adjustment. Like you give an adjustment oh, yeah. to somebody and you're like, I know it's the right segment. I know it's the right listing. I know everything's right. But as you give the adjustment, that split second in your brain, you're like, ah, I didn't get it. And then you don't get the result. But you learn a little something from it, and the next time you're like, I do the same exact adjustment, but I make a subtle little change that I picked up on, and you get the result. And that's something we don't talk a lot, a lot about, but we all know, like I always, <laughs> I always used to always tell students, I know there's such a thing as a bad adjustment because I've given them. So, yeah, the, so the whole idea that there's no such thing as a bad adjustment is like, well, yes, there is. <laughs> I've done it. <laughs> and, you, and you know it the instant you do it. And then you go, okay, well, well here's what happened that I didn't anticipate, mm -hmm. but I can do this next time. And then when you do it, you get the result you're looking for. And just the quality of our own adjustments, how, what process do you go through of kind of even self-evaluating your own adjustment to decide, was that a quality adjustment? And if not, how do I, how do I make it better? How, what role is that even playing in getting my results? Well, that's huge. And I'm glad you bring that up because that's a very difficult study for the young mm -hmm. chiropractors trying to learn how to do adjustments. But my, mine started off with when I was in chiropractic college, I found out what a bad adjustment was, was given to me. <laughs> and I literally said this, if I ever got, if I adjusted you the way you adjusted me, I would never be adjusted again because it hurt that bad. Hopefully it wasn't intentional, <laughs> uh, but but it, whatever it was, it took a while, and I started going to see some constant field doctors, and then they finally started. Oh, that's what a quality adjustment is, and and then once you learn the experience yourself, then you can translate that onto your patient. And I know you've been in chiropractic adjusted enough patients long enough. You go, well, that that one might have that might have stung, yeah, and or no, that was perfect. You get that G note, that uh, mm -hmm. clunk, you know. That didn't hurt at all, did it? And no. Uh, but there are some others when there's spasming of the muscles and you didn't get the patient to relax perfectly or you know, just too hot and you do the adjustment anyway. Sometimes you need to get that vertebral. Man, I did that the other day. It wasn't comfortable. But boy, the change on, on, on that body was tremendous and it was greatly appreciated. Uh, but not at the moment. Right. <laughs> not at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. so I know you've had that experience. Yeah. I've had, it, but students don't have that experience. They need to know that you got to 
Well, you got to get the adjustment, but you, the, the best way is, is do the easy one, uh, and then know that you got to get the, the tough one later. Yeah, the uh, pulling a hot five L, hot L five, and you're like, I'm gonna get it, and you're gonna be better. But between now and then, you're gonna be very angry at me. <laughs> but but then it sets, and they're like thinking you just killed them, and then about three seconds later, they're like, Oh, I'm already getting the leaf. And, and so it's it's like I'm sorry, it's just the it's the road we got to take. And, and that's an experiential thing. Uh, yeah. And and so your best bet is to start off slightly, mm-hmm. uh, and then until you get into those uh, years of experience. And and I'm and I I used to be offended when I was a young chiropractor. Uh, I moved to Tahoe and I talked to all the chiropractors in town, and one of them said. I mean, how long have you been practicing? Oh, five years. He goes, well, you're not going to be good for 10 years. And in my mind, I said, you know what? You've been practicing 20 years. You're just saying that because you have 20 years and I don't have five. And they're just trying to knock me down. Well, he was right. <laughs> it took, yeah. yeah. took that long. Uh, just for the subtlety that you and I are talking about right yes. now. Uh, sometimes you just got to dig in there. And sometimes you just, uh, it's better to back off a little bit. And and to know the difference initially, it just takes it's a sense of, the patient relaxation be prior to the adjustment, which is what Dr. Gunster was such a master on. Mm-hmm. His patients were relaxed. His, they knew he was giving the right adjustment for the right reason, and 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 he got them relaxed just right in that sweet spot, which is a word I, that phrase I never liked because if you ask what that is, and there's you not there's no definition. I can't verbalize it. Yeah. yeah. So don't say it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can't describe it. Don't say it. Uh, but it's a, it's a true statement. Uh-huh. He got everybody relaxed. As you watch his his adjustment thing, ninety nine percent of them were all just sitting down, plunk. Next, yeah. I always tell students that timing and patient relaxation are two key elements of the adjustment that we hardly talk about. Uh-huh. But then even the masterful ability of being able to get the patient to relax, mm-hmm. because some people will just sit there like rigid neck, like like you're about to karate chop them, and it's like there's an art form to getting them to let it let it go enough. With mm-hmm. just your hands yeah. to actually get it, and, yeah. and but that's what makes it happen. And I think that build that starts with the consultation. That starts with the exam. It that does, starts yeah. with, and they know what you know that is what their problem is. And, and as as I heard in some of the other podcasts, uh, when the patient can tell you, and, and I love this phrase, is when Doctor Kunstead used to uh, not talk to his patients. I heard that as well mm-hmm. because it confused them. <laughs> the more you talk, the less I, I can study your spine. And, and, and they didn't understand that for quite a while, but I don't let my patients talk too much. I talk to the patients, they go, well, that's where the problem is, and this hurts more here than there. Am I correct? Well, how'd you know that? We just get that with the practice of your, your palpation skills. And once you can communicate that, they know you know what they know yeah. without, without verbal. Uh, then you then they have that trust. And then with that trust, they can relax. They know they're going to get the right adjustment for the right reasons uh, it, precisely. And that builds. Yeah, and since you bring that up, so this just recently happened. I, whenever students ask me how to get better at adjusting, I always tell them get better at palpating. As your palpation gets better, your adjustments will just magically get better. Mm-hmm. So then I had somebody say to me after watching me, they were like, I'm noticing that you rely very heavily on static palpation. And they said, and I rely almost entirely on motion. And he said, and the more I think about it, the more I realize I'm not even sure I can statically palpate. And he said, and he said, and then as I think about it, I realized most of the guys with experience are doing a lot more static, a lot less motion. And the newbies, we're all doing all motion. And it's really like exaggerated motion instead of this really subtle little motion. Right. And so then he started asking me, he's like, so what is it that you're feeling for? And I'm like, my first answer was everything. I'm feeling for everything. Yeah. And so there's a whole nother learning curve there that 
that each the, time you do it, you, that, you build on it. And I think that as a student or somebody who's trying to learn, if you understand that this is where I'm going with this, that I may be doing motion now because I can feel it, but I want to be doing motion with the goal of getting to static, mm -hmm. then it'll come much quicker and much more effectively. Yeah. And to help with that goal, because we just need experience. It's just, it's a time issue. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was teaching at the chiropractic college, what I encouraged my students to do, and, the, and I did it as, as an example, is I had to carry my, my plastic spine with me. When I was in chiropractic college, anywhere on the, on the campus, I had that spine next to me. But I could feel it. I knew how things moved. It, it wasn't perfect as a human, but I knew lumbars were different than cervicals and thoracics are different. Yeah. And if you just hold it in your hand and move around for months or years, then you get a sense. And if you can't, if you don't have a patient in front of you, like you don't, as a new chiropractic student, uh, you got to get it somehow. And, and I, I just told them, every time I walk in this room, I want to see everybody holding the spine. And it didn't happen <laughs> no. all the time, but it did. And some of the kids just got got into it, and they, you know, those were better palpators, they were better adjusters, and they just learned quickly. Mm -hmm. They don't have to wait that ten years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a point I got so frustrated with adjusting that I took a spine and I would just take my finger right on the back of the SP and I would just push it P to A and I wanted to see how do the facet joints naturally interact mm -hmm. at that level. And go. it didn't take long to go, well, you push on a C5 and it naturally, even in a model, moves in a different direction than a T6 does there you go. and different than an L1 does. Mm -hmm. And it was like, well, what are the segments that most people don't like to adjust because they're hard? And as you start pushing on those, you realize... Oh, they move very differently. So if I tried doing to an L1 what I would do to an L5, that isn't going to work at all. So I need to know. I always call them the usual suspects. Mm -hmm. I got to know this guy like he's my neighbor, and I got to know how he likes to move, and I need to know what he likes to do, and I need to know his personality versus the other. And I just kind of start seeing all the vertebrae as different characters, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and they're all different, but they're all rely they're 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 predictable. And what they do. Yeah, once you know the difference. Mm -hmm. and, and you do something similar as I, as I do in, in my practice. Once I find the subluxation, <laughs> I, I, I just, that's my enemy. I, I, I say that to my patient. Yeah, that's, my that's the bad guy. And we're going to fix that bad guy. And, and, they and, and I, I use verbal notes. And, you know, this is C3 or C5, C2. And the next time they come in, they go, oh, yeah, C5 is off, but C2 is okay. Yes, sir. It's funny to me how quickly they will memorize it because people do want to know, they want to know what is my unique they, thing? What is it that's right. been ruining my life? Mm -hmm. And when you can tell them this is the guy ruining your life, they yeah. remember. And it ruins my life until I fix it. Yep. That's I'm, they know I'm committed, and I am. That's just how I look at these things. Yeah. If you're subluxated, I want to do everything I can in my power to reduce that as fast as I and thoroughly and precisely as I can. Yeah. Yeah. So, and. That that's my, my self-talk. <laughs> yeah. And that's funny, too, because there always is one. And a lot of times I think I'm afraid to share my self-talk because there's some weird stuff going on in there sometimes. <laughs> where, where in my head, I'm like, I'll, I'll be thinking a thought really, really strongly. And I'll be like, I sure hope that didn't come out of my mouth. I hope that just like stuck in there. Because I mean, there's one time um, somebody was like, I was sitting up on somebody. And they're like, well, what are you thinking right now? And I was like, actually, I've got a song from Greatest Showman going through my head. And I'm like, what? I was like, I need the distraction. And for some reason, my kids were just watching that movie. The song's in my head. So I'm going to go with it because I actually need the distraction so that I don't overthink this. And it's just more comfortable just to be thinking a show tune or something. It's, it's fine. Yeah. And that self-talk is big. And you, know, you can't describe it as some of the things that Gonstead did. 
But I, I just sometimes I wonder what his self talk was, how he uh, knew. That would be interesting to know. That would be amazing. And the confidence he showed. I, when I talked to the doctors who, who knew him, he exuded confidence when he was on your on your spine. He's so focused on that. Every any individual that ever met him, or ever connected with him, knew that. He wasn't a good speaker. Wasn't a good other things. Mm -hmm. But when he was with that patient, his mind, heart, and soul was focused to get that enemy, I call it the enemy, uh, fixed. And he did it. And, and they, they felt it, they knew it, and it functionally changed, and they referred other people. That's, that's an interesting point, too, because I've had that happen where um, I scope, I'm palpating, I'm asking a few questions, figuring stuff out, and then I kind of stop and think, and I go, that's what we're going to do. And I often will say it out loud, that's what we're going to do. And it's mm -hmm. just part of my self-talk coming out of my head. Yeah. Um, and I say, that's what we're going to do. And then a student or somebody learning goes, how do you reach that? How did you reach that conviction? I don't know. It was everything, but it's like from everything from experience to what I was feeling. I think a lot of it is putting the story together mm -hmm. in our heads, right. just putting the piece together and maybe I'm a little slow. So it takes a few seconds and all of a sudden it hits and I'm like, that, that's it. Mm -hmm. How, how do you get to the point where you feel I have con and how much conviction do you have? Do you go into adjustments like, well, I hope this works or do you generally adjust feeling very convicted that this is it? Well, I, I work, uh, on the analysis till I have that that, that yes. commitment I know uh, in my heart now uh, that's not 100% <laughs> I wish it was <laughs> I wish it was but, but I start that way and yeah. then, and then I, I know that's just the pattern that, that we need to do and similar to what as I was teaching Gonstead to the other field doctors while I'm in my little seminars uh, the first thing they'll say well you're not Gonstead and, and I'm not Gonstead I can't do what Gonstead did and the answer is absolutely yes you will never get that good. <laughs> so give up now. <laughs> no, but try until you can. And, that, and that's <laughs> it. We've talked about the other people too. Like it's the same thing with sports. It, it, the guy who works in my office with me, he played basketball. And it's the whole idea of be like Michael Jordan, knowing you're probably never going to be Michael Jordan, but you still try anyway because that's going to make the whole thing better. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and, and so there are some frustrations learning God's There are some frustrations of trying to, figure out the subluxation and, and we just got to hold tight uh, knowing that he he gave a good portion of his life that he was asked to do did you notice he didn't write the book <laughs> he, he people went and watched him and he he told them what he wanted everybody to see and in part of the Gunstead uh, Clinical Studies Society and part of the fellows I belong to is to keep that what the message Dr. Gunstead wanted to give he encapsulated that and we also know there's another 10 percent but when I'm when I'm boasting, uh, using Gonstead's name, I use Gonstead terminology and I use his, and, and I don't deviate from that until I make a statement. Okay, now that's the Gonstead presentation. Now you guys want to talk some about some of the other things? Let's do that. And I think it's important to keep that because that's what he wanted, and that's the way he communicated the best he knew of. And we know that it wasn't all perfect. And there's some physiological things that aren't accurate. <laughs> But that's what he knew, and, and that he worked with that and became the best chiropractic doctor ever lived, uh, and that this is what he wanted to share. And so let's keep that, you know, the, the, the principles. And if you keep those principles, your practice will be just fine. That other 10% where you, you, you search high and low to figure out what's the next thing that I should know, what you should know are the basics. That's what you got to know. When you get on that, then build more. And it's so hard, but if you've been an athlete and we've been an athlete, and I've been a coach uh, for 30 years, and 
I always go back to the very basics, and I had students who are now, or wrestlers who are now 35, 36 years old, <laughs> and they go to my practices, and they go, that's what you taught 30 years ago. Yeah. It's it still true. <laughs> it worked. Yeah. And, and they go, well, can that be boring? Doesn't matter to me. I know how to build champions. Yeah. If you have this background, then you'll have that success. And I build on it, but get the background. So that's the message I, I usually leave when I'm doing my seminars. Yeah. And, and to anybody else, I'm talking about gunsmith or adjusting techniques and principles. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, oh, something I was thinking of a second ago, and I can't remember what Oh, I know what I was thinking of. Um, was um, giving confidence to students that one of the things is when you're when you're learning, just the very fact that you're taking the time to do an analysis, to try to narrow it down to one vertebra, to try to get an accurate listing, even if you're wrong. And then when it comes to the adjustment, yeah, your adjustment may not be the best. Maybe you don't know how to do a seated two, uh, seat, seat two seated in the chair. So you put them on a knee chest and you push a little bit. Maybe you don't know how to adjust L5 with a pull move. So you put them on a high-low and just try to take people. That's okay. That Correct. still already puts you in the top 25% of chiropractors most of the time because there are plenty of people who are not doing any analysis whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why, but that's what – and it was hard for me to figure that out because when I first got into practice, I was so overwhelmed that the way I put it – I put my head down. I lived in my office, and I was oblivious to what was happening in the outside world. Mm-hmm. I didn't know, didn't care. I got my own problems was basically my <laughs> attitude. I was like, I have my own problems. And my problem is I'm not good at adjusting. So I just lived there. And then it was like, after about 10 years, I poked my head out of the sand to look around and see what was there. And it didn't take long to realize that right from the very beginning, I was already doing more than a lot just by narrowing it down. And that mm-hmm. there's this strange thing that happens in chiropractic that we think that more is better. And everything in our society tells us more is better. And that when you actively start making a point of trying to limit what you're doing. So you're like, well, I think they've got these three subluxations. Great. Try to do two. Which, what are the two most important ones? Try to do two. And if you can do that, try to do one. And that that kind of training brings you into the point where you can get there. But if you keep saying, well, I've got th- maybe three, I'm going to do five instead. That takes you the other direction and you don't get better. You actually often get sloppier and worse. And so it's that, that focused training of if you think there's three, try to do two. <laughs> and that'll get you there. Yeah, that's so so vitally important because if those two, one of those two works and you can go back to it, or or neither of them work, then you know where to go next. But if you just do everything and nothing works, you can do everything again. Well, and when you make that point, let's say um, let's say you found a L five, T six, and an atlas, and so then you said to yourself, "Well, I usually adjust these three segments, but today I'm just going to do atlas." And you find that the atlas adjustment is so much more powerful when you just did atlas than when you did it with the other two, mm-hmm. that you go, hmm, exactly. <laughs> I've just had an aha moment. <laughs> yeah, and you can repeat it yeah. because it, it's, it's, you repeat success. But you only can learn that by limiting. Yes. And, and that is the most difficult part. And that's, I'm sure that's one of the reasons Dr. Gunn said use that find it, fix it, leave it alone concept. Uh, but I, I, I go to the concept of uh, be sure you uh, find it before you fix it, and be sure you fix it before you leave it alone. <laughs> that, that is that is a great addendum. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Just don't leave them alone because they're... I did it once. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> yeah. yeah you, you're, you got the magical cure. Uh, and, and sometimes it works, but most of the time it's, people come in with some major problems, and, and it takes major solutions to that. You've got to remember, it, and I'm sure you've talked about it on the podcast, you, chiropractic is not usually the first uh, doctor that they went to that's done 
they've done the EMDs, they've done the orthopedics, they've done the physical therapy, and they're still having a problem. I'm really even the first chiropractor they've seen. It's, it's <laughs> the first chiropractor, absolutely. And, and, and it's got to be prepared for it. Now, another good point on that is, at least we know what doesn't work. Now I can build on that, and I see that in my, my location as well. Yeah, or I'll adjust it, or somebody will adjust the patient. They, they do two, three adjustments. Oh, that chiropractor didn't help me. I want to, and then I do the adjustment. And it was because of the work the other chiropractor did <laughs> that set it up to where I could get a good adjustment. Yeah. And I got the credit, which is not right. But it's happened the other way around as well. Well, one of my favorite ones is they come in with, say, an ilium problem. And as they're describing it and I'm doing all this stuff, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I think what happened is that you had a PIEX. And they drove your PI up, and they fixed the PI, but they drove it further EX. Absolutely. So then I come in, I, and by the time I'm evaluating, it looks like a straight EX. There you go. And so I said, them, pull it, mm-hmm. clunks in, they're great, and they're like, the other car didn't help me at all, but you totally fixed it. I'm like, well, they fixed half of it. <laughs> I just yeah. got the other half, the yeah. important half. Yeah, please give credit. Give credit. That's how I do it. I just try to keep things light. And the other thing I, I, I do in my practice quite a bit is when it's not working like I wanted to, and I'm not getting the expectations I believe the patient should have gotten, which does happen. Um, I refer to the chiropractors. I'm, I'm not the, the the guy to refer out just to the MD or anything else. Mm-hmm. If, and I, I know Don Gonstead did. There's stories about him swinging to Atlas-only guys. Mm-hmm. If, if, you know, he got a lot of patients better, but when he didn't, he realized that. That's okay. Don't get the majority better. <laughs> but if you don't, what's next? Well, the next thing is to see if there's the next for me is keeping the principle that he's he always preached and that the principle of chiropractic reducing subluxations is the solution you have to work that solution if it's not working it's not because of the the principle it's because of the chiropractor and if you're not the right one for that particular situation okay move on refer get on with the next patient and guess what they refer back yeah yeah, I've even I've even had that with patients that um, they came in not knowing whether hip hurt. You take an X-ray, you go, you have a degenerated hip. You need a hip replacement. So you send them to get a hip replacement, and they send you three chiropractic patients. Absolutely. Just because they go, well, you clearly know what you're doing. I'm going to send people to you. So you can yeah. get referrals from all over the place if you just do the job well and take care of people the way they need. Right, and, and, and realize you know where your capabilities are, and as you get more into practice, your capabilities naturally increase. So that's that's the fun part. That's what you you look forward to. It, yeah. and, and it's, it's uh, any young chiropractor, I just, I just recommend that it's better than you thought. Yeah. Whatever you thought it was, it's better than that as your skills get yeah. up higher. It and does get to be a great, it does get to be a great spot. Where, it's better than what you thought it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for joining me. That hour flew by. <laughs> that went very quickly. Okay. So, yeah, so that, that was a lot of fun. But thank you for letting me come here and, uh, and join you. And thank you for uh, doing the podcast with me. That was that's excellent. I know a lot of the students, they, they love to hear from somebody who's in the fellows because obviously you haven't been doing this for five minutes. You've got a little experience behind you. And um, it's good to hear. It, it's nice for people to know what's down the road. What does that look like? How do, how do you get from point A to point B? And it really helps to have that long view. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much. I'd like to thank Dr. Borges once again for allowing me to join him in his office. I hope you found today's conversation helpful and that it gave you a glimpse of the thought process of a veteran chiropractor. As always, I hope you have the best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.